0: Well, good morning, saints. It's good to be with you today. Uh, The first time for me in our midst to be able to open God's word with you uh, in the year 2021. I'm thankful that the Lord has given us another Lord's Day to come and look to his word, to sit under it, to pray together, to sing together, and to be built up unto maturity in Christ together. Let's go to God now and ask him for his help as we look to the Bible. He is faithful to always give us the help That we need. Let's pray to Him. Our Father, we do come to you, as has been said so many times in this service already, not on the basis of anything in us, not on the basis of anything that we have done, but we come because of your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness, and we come because of Christ. We are covered in His blood and righteousness, and we are now called by your name. So we pray for you to be with us during this time. Help us as we look to your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what is true. Give us ears to hear it and hearts that would love and receive it. We pray now for your spirit to minister in our midst. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, life is hard. It is full of pain and difficulty often. Everyone in this room has at least had a taste of that this past calendar year or so. So the question should be asked if you're a thoughtful person, which I trust all of you are. We've come here this morning to do something. But what is it that we are doing here when we gather? Why do we come to a service like this? Why is it even that we need the church? Or even specifically, as we have now come to this preaching moment, what is it that we need as we approach the book? Perhaps like me, you're thinking things like this. Brother, my life is difficult. My circumstances are far from excellent right now. Other people's lives, I look around, their their lives are hard. Things are not good. There's COVID-19. There are riots in the streets and in our nation's capital, for crying out loud. What do you have for me? Brother, what do you have for me in the midst of life in this fallen world? Well, friends, we, when we come to God's word, don't need tips and how-tos. We don't need good advice. doesn't matter what it's about.
1: We need hope. We need Christ. Don't tell me five ways to have hope. Point me to the
0: one who is my hope. Don't tell me five ways that I can be encouraged. Point me to my hope and stay. Let's open our Bibles together and do just that. Specifically, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. As you're making your way to Ephesians 3, I'm just going to give a brief word of context. It's been about three weeks or so since we have looked at Paul's letter to the Ephesians together. In chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul begins a prayer on behalf of his Gentile audience. He is going to pray that Christ would dwell in them richly and that they would know the love of Christ for them. He's going to actually pray that in verses 14 to 21 of Ephesians chapter 3. He begins in verse 1, and then he kind of interrupts himself in verses 2 to 13. He mentions in verse 1 his special call to serve the Gentiles. And that prompts him to then go on to briefly explain his ministry and to further explain the plan of God to save Jews and Gentiles through Christ before he will then actually begin his prayer anew in verse 14. Next week, we're going to be looking at that prayer piece, verses 14 to 21. It's a wonderful prayer that Paul prays. But for our time together today, we're going to specifically be considering verses 7 to 13 of Ephesians chapter 3. But I'm going to read for us verses 1 to 13, just because it's all of one piece. So listen now as I read God's word. Amen. We thank God for his word today and always. In verses 7 to 12 of Ephesians chapter 3, we will see the source, the content, and the purpose of Paul's ministry. In verses 7 to 12, we're going to see the source, the content, and the purpose of Paul's ministry. The source we will see specifically in verse 7 and the first half of verse 8. And then in the second half of verse 8 through verse 12, we're going to see essentially the content and purpose sort of interwoven. It's hard to pull those two things apart in the way that Paul has written these words. So the plan for today is to walk our way through verses 7 to 12 with those things in view, and then we will conclude with verse 13. We'll reflect and we'll consider implications of these things as we go. So let's put our eyes together on verse 7. You see in that verse that Paul was made a minister of the gospel by the gift of God's grace, not by his own merit. He was made a minister of the gospel by the working of God's power, not his own strength. It's very clear in the mind of Paul that there was nothing about him that qualified him or made him fit for the ministry that he has been given by God. So not only are we as God's people saved completely by the grace and power of God, any ministry of any kind that we ever do, we only do by God's grace and power. And perhaps more pointedly, given that Paul is talking about being a minister of the Gospel, no man has ever made himself one of those. As has been said, None but He who made the world can make a minister of the Gospel. Paul goes on in verse 8 to essentially continue to think about the source of his ministry, but then he transitions to some of the content, what his ministry is actually about. He says, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Paul notes again his unworthiness. In his mind, we trust this is not lip service. This is not some humble brag. In his mind, he does sincerely consider himself to be the least of all the saints. Yet God, in His grace, has given Paul a ministry. Though Paul is inconsequential, though Paul is insignificant, though Paul is the least, God has given him a ministry. Paul writes elsewhere in his letter to Timothy, the first one, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Those words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy are applicable and help us understand further even what he means in this text. I'm the very least of all the saints. I am the foremost of sinners. Yet God has given me a ministry. If He has given me a ministry, And if Christ has been so patient, so gentle, so merciful, so gracious to me, dear saints, brothers and sisters, He will be so to you. That's clearly in Paul's mind. I read this quote from John Newton recently. I'm going to read it again for us today to illustrate, I think, even more of what Paul is saying to his audience. I personally am saying to you, God has seen fit to give this sinful man some kind of ministry and has permitted me to speak publicly for his son. And I, as John Newton wrote, in secret am for the most part dull and heartless as usual. But he is pleased to enable me and permit me to speak for him in public. Saints, if God has been merciful to me, one of your pastors, if he has been patient with this wretch, if he has been gentle toward this struggling sinner, He will be with you. This applies not just for pastors and congregants, not just for the apostle and his audience, but this applies, brothers and sisters, for all of us. As we interact on a daily basis and a weekly basis, we ought to have this kind of thing flavor our speech. Friend, brother, sister, God has been gracious with me. God has been gentle with me. God has been patient and long-suffering with me as I've struggled and wrestled. As you struggle and wrestle and doubt, He will be patient with you. We encourage one another with that testimony. But even as we now consider what Paul's ministry is, we've thought about the fact that he's not qualified, he's not fit, it's the grace of God, it's the mercy of God that has made him a minister, has made him an apostle. What is it that Paul's ministry is about? What is it that he is to do? What was he set aside to accomplish? What was his task? In his own words, he said that he had been set aside to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Paul, you're an apostle of the church, man. You're a significant in the history of the church as any human being has been, save Christ. What's your role as God has made you this apostle? What is it that you are to do? Surely there's a bunch of stuff. Well, Paul says, I have been called to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain the plan of God to save His people through His Son. I endeavor to know nothing among you other than Christ and Him crucified. That's the ministry of the apostle. His ministry, quite simply, is to herald Jesus Christ and to help people better understand and more clearly see the plan of God that has existed from before the world began to save sinners like us. Let's put our eyes now on verse 10. The purpose of all of this is so that God might display His wisdom. God seeks to glorify Himself in the world that He has made. Amen? Who else would we have Him exalt other than Himself? God has determined that He will display His wisdom in the world that He has made. His wisdom in particular to save the nations through Christ, He desires to put on full display. And he has determined, he could have done that in any number of ways, but he has determined that he is going to display his manifold wisdom to save the nations through the church. Through the church, his manifold wisdom is displayed to not just human beings, but to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is kind of a big deal. This rings of 2 Peter 1, where there's these glorious truths into which angels long to look. God is putting His wisdom and glory on display for the entire universe to see, for the heavens to behold. And He does that by saving Jew and Gentile in the church and making them one people of God. Through the work of God's Son, He has saved people from every tribe, every language, every nation in the church. So consider the church for a moment. God not only displays His wisdom through her, He gets glory through her. But think of the significance of the church in the mind and heart
1: and purpose of God. Christ shed His blood for her to atone for her sin. Christ has given His righteousness to her. She, the church, has always been God's plan. She is Christ's
0: bride. And one day she will be presented pure and blameless without blemish alongside her Savior. Now, the church, as Paul describes it here in verse 10, without doubt he is referring to the universal church, saints from all time, right through all the ages. And at the same time, the universal church is comprised of local churches like this one. True local churches where the gospel is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered are outposts of the kingdom of heaven. So there are a number of implications for us as we think about the significance of the church in the mind of God. If the church is that big a deal to Him, that ought to mean something for us. Implications of Ephesians 3.10 are plentiful, but well, let's consider a few. God's plan for us in Christ will be realized through the church. We know that God has plans. We know that God has plans particularly to do things for us through His Son, and that happens through the church. To love Christ, brothers and sisters, is to love His bride. An implication of Ephesians 3.10 is that it is a strange thought indeed
1: that one might claim to love Christ and yet hate the church. Another implication is that God will
0: display his wisdom and his glory through us as individuals. He will do that in and through the church as we live life together corporately. So practically for us, this means that we ought to value and prioritize the church. We ought to love our brothers and sisters and serve one another. We should, as much as is possible, be present here. Be present with one another. We ought not ever make the mistake of thinking that we are better off going it alone. That we would be better off just us and Jesus and our Bibles or something. We should cling to one another as we all cling to Christ. And as we do all of those things, we are doing God's will. People in our day wig out about the will of God, do they not? I want to be certain that the decisions I'm making are inside God's will for me. I don't want to do anything that's going to put me outside of God's will for my life. How you doing today, brother? Well, I'm doing well. I've just spent a lot of time in prayer trying to figure out God's will for my life, you know, that kind of thing. Friend, we know that as we do these things that have been clearly instructed to us, given instruction to us in God's word, that we are doing his will. So we ought not... Freak out about things like this. The will of God. Let's begin by show up here on Sunday. If it's not this church, find another church that preaches the gospel and lock arms with those saints and those pastors. Love your brothers and sisters. Seek to serve one another. Consider others as more important than yourself. Live with one another in peace and unity and harmony. Point one another to Christ in the good times and the bad. We do that stuff.
1: If we do that stuff, we're doing the will of God. And as we do those things, God displays his wisdom
0: and God displays his glory through us. It's a remarkable thought that we, as fallen and corrupt, sinful as we are, could be instruments through which God displays his wisdom and glory. And he'll do it in us as we gather and love one another in the church. Let's put our eyes now on verse 11. We're kind of moving toward a crescendo here as we're going to think more about the eternal purpose of God in Christ and what that means for us. All of this that we have been considering, the establishment of the church and the salvation of Gentiles and Jews in the church, for the glory of God that he might display his wisdom was according to the eternal purpose of God realized in Christ. You can see that in verse 11. In verse 9, Paul has used the language of the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Here in verse 11, he uses the language of the eternal purpose of God that he has realized in Christ. So, regarding all of that, that Mystery hidden for ages in God and the eternal purpose of God that He's realized in Christ. We're going to very quickly, relatively quickly, I want to make sure I'm speaking accurately. I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, you know. Relatively quickly, we're going to consider a 30,000 foot flyover of the plan of God. It's good for us to do this occasionally as a church so that we keep the big picture in view. We know that before the world began, when Only God was that the Father and the Son made a covenant together that they would save a people and that those people particularly would be saved by the work that the Son would do in order to redeem them. And then we know that God made the world and that He made man uniquely in His image and He made a covenant with our first parents, with Adam and with Eve. He told them, here are the things that you're to do. Here's how you're to live before me. Here is the one thing you are not to do, and here are the sanctions should you break this covenant. And we know that our first parents broke that covenant and plunged the human race into sin and ruin and corruption and the creation along with it. But in the immediate aftermath of that sin and the breaking of that covenant that God made with Adam, God made a promise. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he promised that there would be one who would come from the seed of the woman who would crush, who would defeat the serpent, the ancient serpent who is the devil. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, a man named Abram is called out of paganism, and God chooses him and blesses him and makes a covenant with him. He tells him he's going to make a nation out of him and that. Kingdom, uh, the kingdom would come from him and kings would come from him. And then he makes a promise that the nations would be blessed through his promised offspring. Years later, there's a man named Moses who is made both a prophet and a mediator between God and man. Through this man, God gave his people the law. Through this man, God established the sacrificial system. What were the law and the sacrificial system primarily intended to do? The law was primarily intended to show us, show God's people our sin and drive us to the Redeemer. The sacrificial system, what was it about? It was to teach the people that the shedding of blood is required to atone for sin, that atonement and satisfaction for sin must be made and that it must be made by an unblemished sacrifice in order to be made clean. Many, many centuries after that, there's a man named David whom God put up as the king of his people. And God made a covenant with him. And he told him that there would be one of his sons who would reign on the throne of righteousness forever. And that as the king went, so went the nation. The king would represent the people. And then we have the ministry of the prophets. Words like this from Isaiah. He speaks of David's father, Jesse. He says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. Here we have this theme, of God saving the nations. Clear. And his resting place shall be glorious. We learn through Isaiah of the suffering servant through whom the people's sin would be atoned for and through whom the people would be accounted righteous. Then from the pen of the prophet Jeremiah in the midst of exile because of the wickedness of the kings, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The prophet Malachi wrote, Behold, these are the words of the Lord, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then there's 400 years of radio silence. And then an angel appears to a virgin girl and says, Behold, you're going to conceive a son. You will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end when that baby was eight days old, a man named Simeon, a devout and righteous man, took him up in his arms and said, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. 30 years later, John the Baptist, that messenger, that forerunner of God, would cry out in the wilderness, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then there's the witness of the apostles who wrote things like this of that promised seed of Abraham. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. The plan of God that has been hidden for ages to herald the riches of the grace of Christ. Then there's the realization of all of this. There's the realization of the plan of God. The praise of heaven to the Lamb as we will sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Apostle John, in his revelation, writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise be to His name. The plan of God. This is a big book, and it is remarkable in how it all hangs together. It tells one story. It tells the story of the plan of God from eternity past to redeem sinners through Christ from every tribe and language and people and nation to the praise of His glorious grace. That was the ministry of the Apostle Paul, to make those things plain. And that is the ministry of any godly preacher, to make those things plain. Pray for your pastors that we would herald Christ and that we would make those mysteries plain. Let's now look to verse 12 together. Paul says there in verse 12, of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Well, what is meant by boldness and access? It means boldness before and access to the throne of the holy God. Boldness and access with confidence before God. It's a massive deal. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, we thought about that a minute ago,
1: Boldness and access and confidence before God were lost. They were no more. But Jesus changed that irrevocably, once and for
0: all. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need but when christ had offered for a single excuse me for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus, friends, has made satisfaction for the sin that separated us from God. He has provided us with the righteousness that God requires in order to live before Him. We just a few moments ago did a flyover in one sense of redemptive history. Another significant theme in Scripture is this separation from the immediate loving presence of God as a result of sin. Many will know that at the end of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden. God drives them out. He puts a cherubim, a very frightening angel, right, with a flaming sword to guard the way lest Adam and Eve could come back in. Years later, as God is establishing his people Israel, and he tells them to build a tabernacle where his presence will uniquely dwell. In the middle of that tabernacle is the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God dwells. Only the high priest can go in there once a year. And there is a curtain that separates that space from even the rest of the tabernacle and the rest of the camp of Israel. What is it that's on that curtain? It's cherubim with a sword. You can't come in because you're a sinner. No access, no boldness,
1: no confidence. You come in here, you die. Because God is holy and you're not. When Christ died, that same curtain hung
0: outside the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. When that Death occurred when the skies turned dark and the earth trembled. That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom.
1: Torn from top to bottom signifying that the tearing of this curtain had come from heaven, from God himself, not from man.
0: The barrier, because of the work of Christ, the barrier had been removed. Access regained. Confidence and boldness restored. Oh, the unsearchable Riches of Christ. Those who were dead had been made alive. Those who were enslaved have been set free. Those who were far off have been brought near. Those who could not enter have been invited in. Those who had no inheritance have been guaranteed one. Those who were strangers have been adopted into the family of God. Those who were God's enemies are being fashioned into the place where God Himself dwells. Those who were without hope and without God in the world have been born again to a living hope and one day will live in a city whose
1: name will be the Lord is there. Put your eyes back on verse 12. One other significant observation.
0: Paul says, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him, by way of our faith in Christ. In Christ, we have boldness before God and access to God and confidence before God. Amen. But we do not have that boldness and that access and that confidence through our works. We don't have boldness and access and confidence through our obedience. We don't have boldness and access and confidence through the transformation of our lives. A lot of times I think we feel that way. I feel bold before God. I feel like I have access to him. I feel like I can be confident
1: in the presence of God when I'm doing well. But not so much if I'm having a bad day. It's
0: good that we be reminded that our boldness and access and confidence before the Lord has always been on the grounds and basis of Christ alone, on the basis of his work and his merit, his righteousness, not ours. He is the ground and basis of our boldness and access and confidence today, tomorrow, and forever. As the writer of the Hebrews says, Because of Jesus, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence,
1: always. Jesus has done the work. We receive what he has done. Faith is the means through which the
0: merit and the work of Christ is counted to sinners. And we have boldness and access with confidence to God through our faith in Christ. And because Christ never changes, and because His righteousness is perfect,
1: and because Christ is without sin, our access is always the same. Our confidence is
0: always the same. The eternal plan of God has always been to save His people through the work of His Son and through the work of His Son alone. In Christ alone is the song of the plan of God. As we land the plane, friends, I want to conclude with Paul's words in verse 13. He writes to his audience at the church in Ephesus. He encourages them in light of everything he's writing. He encourages them to not lose heart as a result of what he's suffering for their sake. Paul, is remember, he's under house arrest. Paul was imprisoned at various points in his life. And he's suffering in that regard because he's preaching the gospel. That he does not want the Ephesian Christians to look around at circumstantial matters and lose heart. That encouragement, don't lose heart, is a message that we often need in a world that's fallen. Even for us ourselves. There's a lot of uncertainty in this life. Suffering is a reality that we all endure. We don't need to pray for suffering. In fact, we shouldn't. We don't need to go looking for suffering. It's guaranteed in a Genesis 3 world. The only thing that is certain in one sense in this life is that we will suffer and that death is coming. The year 2020 has been difficult for many people in a whole host of ways. And let's be real, we're what, 10 days into 2021, and not much has changed, right? I mean, you've all seen the memes, right? Or seven days into this new year. Can I just return it and get a different one? I mean, it, it's the same. Why we sometimes think that, you know, the date on a calendar changing is just going to magically make things better is beyond me, and we're foolish like that sometimes. We're in 2021. Things are the same shutdowns exist, many people living in isolation, loved ones have died. Our country is obviously in turmoil. We've witnessed things even this week that I trust many of us have never seen in our lifetimes or would have ever imagined that we might see. If we have learned anything over the last year, it is that we should never put our hope in anything in this life.
1: We should never put our hope in our circumstances, in our own health, in our own plans, or in our government. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the
0: city that is to come. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be
1: shaken. Beloved, God's eternal plan is to save us through Christ. Don't lose heart because God is faithful
0: Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what matters. There is turmoil all around. True. We have not yet seen the full realization of the promises of God. True. But it's coming. It's coming. Of saints who have gone before it. God says this. These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth.
1: Let's pray. Our Father in heaven,
0: we thank you for your word and your promises. We thank you for Christ and his work in our place because as we consider him, we know that because of what he has done and because he is,
1: you will fulfill and accomplish and deliver on every promise that you've ever made. We pray that you would
0: sustain our faith, that you would sustain our hope, that you would keep us from losing heart. We pray that we would love one another well here in this church, that we would encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near, that we would stir up one another to love and good works, that we would point one another to the one who is our hope, none other than your son, Jesus. We pray for us now as we come to your table that you would continue to sustain and confirm and strengthen
1: our faith. And we pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen.